Well, here we are back again to pick up on the fascinating interview with Susan Crumdike. You may recall we just finished talking about the relationship between Apollo 13 and New Zealand's number eight wire mentality. And now I'm going to pick up on asking Susan about her book, Transition Engineering, which is a milestone book in that discipline. At the end of your book, Transition Engineering, you have a wonderful and intriguing title for the last chapter, and it's called Cassandra and the Big Do, and the Do is capital D, capital O. I'd like you to unpick that for us and outline what your key conclusions are that that chapter title is pointing to. Right. Well, um, just in case you don't know, Cassandra um, was the princess of Troy. Right. And she had foresight. She could see the future. But when she tried to tell people what she saw, it came out gobbledygook, riddly stuff. Right. So she had a blessing and a curse. Mm. <laughs> um, and so, of course, when the Trojans played their trick, or I'm sorry, when the Greek Greeks played their trick of filling up a wooden horse with soldiers and uh, leaving it as tribute in front of the gates of Troy, um, Cassandra could tell that that was, that was the problem, <laughs> but the king and the generals and the soldiers had all decided that this was tribute left for them because they, they had won. And so they were going to bring that statue in and put it in the middle of the city and dance around it and have a good time. Right. <laughs> and so Cassandra tried to warn people, don't bring that in, don't, you know, don't leave it overnight mm. unguarded don't you know yeah and all and of course they decided that um well as a woman too because women didn't have any stature at all even though she was a princess so so they locked her in the um in in the temple <laughs> and uh got her out of the way because she was shrieking and carrying on and they yeah, that's right. the party <laughs> And, and don't so, spoil a good party. <laughs> yeah, so that's a, a really good metaphor again for our perceptions being wrong, right? The the, mm. tra the Trojans were a little bit wrong about what was going on. Mm. And so what in the world could Cassandra do? It seems like that story is going to play itself out. I mean, that's the way the story goes. And I said, well, um, what transition engineering about is about is rewriting the story, rewriting the ending of the story through our new perceptions. So Cassandra could tell the king and the generals and the soldiers things that were not about the future. So she could play to their beliefs that they had won. Mm. Why don't we leave the horse outside the city walls so that everyone can see it and know that we won? Good suggestion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if they didn't go for that and they wanted to wheel it anyway, Okay, well, because we had such a victory, we should have all of our best soldiers, um, you know, stay up all night with torches around the statue celebrating the, the victory. Yes, good idea. <laughs> Great suggestion. <laughs> and if that doesn't work, okay, well, we all know that the best tribute to the gods is sacrifice. So what we really should do is pull this statue in and set it on fire and send it to the heavens, mm, you know? Yeah. Uh, to, to say we won this thing. So there's three really good options that achieve the outcome that warning, warning, warning will not achieve. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, um, the curse of Cassandra. It's um, I've sometimes written that 
I feel for scientists who, in a way, have got exactly. the curse of Cassandra. They're trained up to see what's going to happen, and then nobody believes them, isn't it? It's a, well, and they do. I'm sorry, speaking a little bit of gobbledygook. <laughs> oh, they do, and I think um, they're they're trying to work on that. But you're right; it's a it's a that's an issue right. too. So the big do is actually um, that issue of slowing down. 10% a year, the mm. production of oil, coal, and gas. Yeah. Right. It's about what we shall not do. And mm. recognizing that that, even, even if you come up with your most clever ways to do that, like, um, well, of course, it's not working to say that that it should be um, consumers' problem to slow down the production mm. of oil. <laughs> <laughs> and that the oil companies are only doing what the consumers want, right? <laughs> but in fact... Slowing down the production of oil is, of course, the way that we will all figure out mm. how to use less. So that's the actual big do is, is how do we convince the oil companies to slow down production? In a way, Northern Europe is facing the big do at the moment, isn't it? They certainly Putin. are. They yeah. hadn't planned for it, had they? <laughs> no. <laughs> Much okay. better than a plan. Oh, well, thank you. Another interesting answer, Susan. Um, I'm now going to ask you something that might seem a bit strange for a transition engineer, although you have touched a little bit on growth. And I want to ask about a growth economy because our conventional business thinking is predicated on ongoing GDP growth with now ongoing talk about decoupling it from emissions. To what extent is that a real prospect, both in principle and logistically, at the sort of decarbonisation rates we have to achieve, you know, um, decouple growth from car emissions, and we can keep growing. Sort of mantra. Please, can you comment? Right. All right. Well, in transition engineering, the process that I've been talking about is that we understand why we why we aren't going to change what we're doing. I mean, just be honest. Yeah. We can say we must all we want, and that doesn't mean we are. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So just really recognize that, um, no, we are not going to change. So that means we have a wicked problem because there's no solution that's going to fix it for us and we aren't going to change it because we don't want to. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <We're doing laughs> toddler thing again. All right. So economic growth. Oh, so then the next step is we say, okay, we're going to park that then. So what I really need to do is go back in time 100 years and work my way forward to see how did we get here? And what I find when I do that is that economic growth, the way that we think about it now, was our, uh, you're in my, <laughs> grandparents' idea hmm. and young people's great-grandparents' idea. Why? Because they had been through the bloody Great Depression. Hmm. And that was so catastrophic that they never wanted to see that happen again. And they were just, just in their psyche growth seemed to be the antidote that would keep that monster at bay. And so it became so ensconced when we have 60,000 years of human experience where growth was not even like it, it, it would be a dangerous thing to get mm. your population too big or to yeah. cut to the forest or yeah. It, mm. And it was actually ensconced in, in um, you know, in culture and stuff to keep the cycles going, not the growth going. You might have growth cycles, but but you keep, you make sure that you can come back and do it again. Yeah, it wasn't a perpetual upward graph sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. Right. So then when you get to the 1980s and Excel is invented, now any Yahoo can make a graph of perpetual growth. 
<laughs> and point to it and go, well, there you go. And then you can make another one where you make a line going down and a line going up. And you say, yeah. we can decouple them. And here we are telling ourselves stories again. <laughs> yeah, it's perception. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. So that that whole thing is sort of a fancy story based on, um, you know, a, a reality that did exist. Mm. Um, and so what the heck are we going to do now? Right. <laughs> well, um, I know that it's going to be really hard to change our whole narrative um, but we've done it so many times before. I think it, it is possible. Mm. And especially if we um, do what I think people have known. Well, since the guy who put forward GDP as a way to figure out, are we producing more than we did before? And therefore coming out of the out of the depression, he said, don't look at this as the way that you gauge your economy. <laughs> he did, didn't he? He warned he about it. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, given that people have been saying, for the whole time, don't use GDP. And people have been trying to figure out better metrics forever. Mm. Mm. So maybe just park the whole thing and say, okay, obviously we do need things to grow. And those things need to be regenerative industries. Yeah, good point. <laughs> they need to be things that, uh, you know, like the 20-minute the neighborhoods of your city need to grow. The ability for people to live within a non-car lifestyle needs to grow. The number of insulated homes needs to grow. So we've mm. got lots of growth we need to do. And by growth, what we really mean is people um, doing what needs doing, therefore having a job, um, what needs doing, getting done, therefore people are okay. So, uh, so you know, maybe just... Um, maybe it would be more possible to shift what it is we want to see grow from just the, this sort of weird metric that we all know is tainted and not correct mm. um, to things that we know we need to do. It's a very much a perception thing, isn't it? It's that yeah. growth, growth mantra. Thank you for that. Um, yes, uh, <laughs> an engineer on growth. It's good to hear you talking. Um, <laughs> I'm, we're, we're coming towards the end, Susan, but I – I would love you to look into your crystal ball and tell us what you see 50 years ahead in terms of do you see any climate resilient societies? And if so, what do they look like? Please give us your crystal ball picture. Right. Well, one thing that I've been really privileged to do in my um, career at Canterbury was to do research on energy systems in traditional economies. So in um, far-flung islands of Fiji, in Maldives, in, in Guyana, wow. uh, Amerindian villages in Guyana. <laughs> and what I know is that in 50 years, those folks will be pretty much okay. Well, okay, maybe not the ones living on low-lying islands. but. Um, that people who, like I said, they want to keep things steady and they they really don't actually want to buy into the perpetual growth um, debt riddled, mm. um, you know, lifestyle that we have. They, they actually don't want it. And so, again, another really bad perception of ours is that they do. They want a good life and they want to be healthy and they want to have autonomy and they want to have equity, but they, yeah, they don't necessarily want to be like us. Mm -hmm. So um, what I see 50 years from now is that there definitely are, are places where, um, uh, you know, the low carbon lifestyle is fine 
Um, and I think, you know, the students that I had in 2020 who experienced Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, Dunedin without cars, um, their transition engineering projects that they did were, this is how our city should be. <laughs> yeah, that, we've got a, like a case study there, haven't we? Oh, yes. They, they you know, okay, they're only 20-something, but they could see it. They could mm. see the future the way they want it to be. And they yeah. understood that transition engineering is about changing from what we've got now to that. And that's what they worked on. And they came up with lots of clever ways to do that. Mm. So the route to 2050 is like that. It's just taking on that project and figuring out, okay, in the place I'm at, what would I do now? You know, mm. what's what's a thing that is profitable, that delivers um, benefits, that can be done, that, you know, doesn't cost the moon, um, that changes the future. Um, so I, I do see that possibility. Um Maybe not for America. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, America may be very late to the table. Now that mm. said, they can be very fast once they get yeah. once they get the right vision. They could they could just uh, come from behind in a whirlwind fashion, um, and their rural areas will probably be okay. Mm. Um, but the yeah, um, fifty years from now, I see uh, you know don't buy another car because the perception. <laughs> that somehow the future includes cars, big trucks, airplanes. Um, there will be a few airplanes, but they're for really important things. Um, mm. There will be a few vehicles, but only for really important things. Probably the things that are the most important are a bit of agricultural use and some shipping. Um, and that you can run a, a world economy on and a national economy on. So the rest of it is people doing what needs doing. Mm. So I, the biggest change I see in 2050 is that we no longer talk about what we do as a job. And we absolutely 100% never refer to ourselves or our fellow humans as consumers. Yeah. We've made the transition. <laughs> <laughs> we are mothers, carers, builders, carpenters. Um, you know, we, we do stuff. We do what needs doing. Hmm. And of course, we use what we need to use. But this idea of being consumers, that's just so insulting that it's only used as an insult. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. Victoria University of Wellington had a wonderful webinar or oh, about a year ago at the School of Business, Tim Jackson was on it. You know who you know who Tim Jackson is? I was on it too. <laughs> oh, were you? Oh, you were too. Of course you were. Well, I'm glad I said it was a good good webinar, didn't I? But Tim made the comment that we have to shift from a focus on making big income from ourselves to providing a service. And in a way, you're saying that reframe ourselves as mothers and carpenters and so on, not right. as not as consumers. Well, and I'll tell you what, I have gone back in time and figured out when did we become consumers? I, I seem to remember hearing that and thinking, what does that mean? Right. Mm. It was Ronald Reagan when he did neoliberal economics. Wow. He started referring to Americans as consumers, American consumers, Gee. American consumers. And in a funny way, it's a little bit about the same time, at least in New Zealand, when sports teams became franchises. You know, it's a bit the same, isn't it? The commercialization of everything. And farms became industrial complexes. <laughs> That's right. Okay, well, I, I want to close with a final question, if I may. Well, it's okay. a, an opening a door for you. 
one of the treats for me about having someone of your sort of caliber on the show is that I can invite you to share with us what would be your own top take-home message or messages for listeners generally, and especially for those thinking about the coming local body elections and what they should think about for focusing on for their councils and their their members and so on. What's your big take-home message there, Susan? All right. My big take-home message is that the same problem of ensconced perceptionism <laughs> exists at the local level, right? We, we call long-term planning three years or something. <laughs> so just yeah, the, that's right. The way that we talk about things, always step back and go, wait a minute, what if it, what if, what if that's not actually true, right? So, so do that questioning. But then here's the good news. Um, from what I can tell, transition engineering is the antidote to, you know, the, the way ensconced perceptionism. Great yes. phrase. <laughs> and one of the reasons it is is because the methodology requires that you go local. You can't solve the world, mm, right? Solutionism okay. wants to do that. Um, these sort of blanket top down, oh, we'll have green energy or whatever. Those are mm. those are those sort of things. And that's where our bad perceptions come from. So turn it over and you have to start with a local place, a place and an essential need. And then you work from there. Mm. And so the transition to a climate safe world, an environmentally thriving world, a world where people are working, doing good things, that world exists through nucleation and growth from the local level. So, mm. so it's from the ground up. So please, um, councils, local people, send um, 10 people from the council, 10 officers to the transition engineering <laughs> <laughs> Good course, yeah. Good, good right. one. Okay, look, I think on that note, uh, we have to we have to bring this to an end. It's been a wonderful time. You've been generous with your time when I know you've got a very compelling family reason to be here in the first place. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of Climate Matters. Thank you for having me. If you want to find out more about these podcasts, either background information or links to other episodes, then please do go on the Resilience website. That is at www.resilience.co.nz and there you will find easy links to the web pages that contain the information and links to the podcasts. For your information, the next podcast to be released will be on the theme of envisaging the future and championing change. And we've got uh, wonderful guests there again. We've got Climate Change Commissioner and Victoria University Professor James Renwick. And then James is followed on the same theme by Sophie Hanford. That's a name that may well ring a bell with some people. Sophie came to prominence when she was leading the wonderful Fridays for the Future marches in 2019. And now she is an articulate councillor at Kapiti Coast District Council. So please do join us for those uh, podcasts. And we look forward to your company on other parts of the series. This is Lindsay Wood wishing you well. Kia kaha for the climate.